So did you recognize that song? Did it take a minute? Some of you went right back to eighth grade. It's a school dance, all right? Some of you know that song because your parents still listen to it because of that same school dance, right? But if you listen to the lyrics, it's a really sad song. Do you know what love is? I want someone to show me. You see, the human condition is filled with struggle. We, we lack love and acceptance. We, we long for a safe place. We feel beaten down from the pace of life, exhausted trying to live up to other people's expectations. We've made terrible mistakes and have no place to turn, and so we feel stuck in patterns that we can't seem to get out of. We feel emotionally damaged, alone, and purposeless, and unlovable. See, every single one of us needs a safe place, a harbor into which we can come to heal and grow and chart a new course. And it's the beginning of a new year, a new decade, and we want that. We, we need that. And so as many of you know, if you've been here for these 12 years or somewhere along the way, unless you're brand new, you probably heard us say, this is a place where you can come as you are. And we mean that. This is a place, no matter what doubts you might have, no matter what struggles you might have, it doesn't matter about your past hurts or your failures, that this is a place where you can grow that you can become more the person who God's created you to be. And if you're someone who follows Jesus, this is a place that will challenge you to, to be on mission with God. And it's at these new year moments that we come up sometimes with just this hope of, of something different. In fact, how many of you made New Year's resolutions? Be bold. How many of you? All right, seven, eight of us. All right. <laughs> The rest of you, pray for us, right? <laughs> yeah, New Year's resolutions are, are difficult. They, 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 we, they get excited, we get excited and then we seem to peter out. I, I saw a couple online. These were two of my favorites. I'm going to try, oh, I'm going to quit trying to stop smoking this year. <laughs> I feel like they're going to probably pull that off. Or this one, I'm going to watch exercise videos while I snack. It's like a half step. It's a half step. And being realistic, that's one way to do it. Uh, but I want to give you an actual goal that's realistic and even doable. What if a year from now, you are a better person than you are today? And this can actually happen. This is realistic. This is doable. And we can help each other get there. It's a character goal. But it requires a, a willingness to engage with community. To, to practice this new way of living with your family, with your roommates, with your spouse, your kids, your roommates, your coworkers, your friends. And, and so to, in order to do this, and we're looking at this idea of envisioning a new you this entire month, and, and today we're looking at this idea of becoming a more accepting person, a grace-giving person. You see, we're all going to face storms in our life, and we all need a safe harbor, a safe place to shelter in the midst of these trials and temptations. And we can actually be that for each other. And in fact, unfortunately, some of you have looked for a safe place only to find more pain and disappointment. Maybe it was with your family. 
Maybe it was your friends or in bars and nightclubs or maybe even in churches. And I want you to know that God wants his church to be this kind of safe place. Jesus painted this really beautiful picture of the safe place that he longs for us to experience when he stood out on Mount Olivet overlooking Jerusalem. He said these words in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. If you've ever seen a a mother hen with her chicks, it's a beautiful illustration of the safety that God wants to provide for his people. I mean, we're in South Austin. How many of you own chickens? I hear them. I hear them. Yeah. If you've never seen this, it's, it's really this beautiful thing. The, when they sense danger, the chicks run to their mother who, who covers them up. So they cannot even be seen by the enemy. And I'm convinced that's God's desire, that he wants his church to be that kind of community, a safe place for people who are feeling beaten down and oppressed, for people feeling alienated and alone, for people feeling worn out from constantly trying to perform, a safe refuge, a spiritual harbor. But in order for us to be a safe place, we have to first become safe people. So how do we do that? Well, by looking at how God treats us. See, Romans 5.8 tells us this. God shows this, showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. See, God chooses us as is. We didn't have to do enough good things to get him to come rescue us. We didn't have to live up to some sort of religious level of accomplishment. You and I don't have to prove ourselves worthy. God chooses us as we are. And this is not just true if we don't follow God. This is actually true for every one of us, that we can come to him as we are every day, even as followers of Jesus. In fact, that's how you grow, is just continuing to be honest with where you're at with God, not trying to put on pretense and act like you have it all figured out. See, God accepts us as we are, and he tells us this in Romans 7, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. See, we're trying to create a a local community where people feel loved because they are loved, where people feel accepted because they are accepted. And we want that to be true, not just in our lobby or on Sunday mornings. We want that to be true in every part of our community, in our groups, Our groups are about growing spiritually. There are about eight to 16 people in these groups. And we have all sorts of groups, like on Monday nights for those who are older than 50. Or we have a a 6 a.m. men's group on Wednesday morning. I know you're not busy then. We have another men's group, 6.30 on Wednesday night. We have groups that are at lunchtime on Wednesdays here at the building. We have new community groups for couples, for kids in college, for people in their 20s, and for all ages. Places where you can connect to grow spiritually. And in our networks, which are about connecting through serving, we have all sorts of networks, like the women's network that's having breakfast on the last Saturday of the month, or the new 35 plus network that's having dinner tonight after the 
6 p.m. service or the new health and wellness network that goes on walks and runs together. We also have networks and locations such as Dripping Springs, and some of these are actually becoming campuses. In fact, our Buda Network has launched their new service today. Isn't that exciting? Yes. In fact, if you don't know the story, it's a fascinating story. Our campus pastor there is Jesse and his wife, Chrissy. Let me show you a picture of them. There they are. They have eight kids. There's one in her belly there. That's right. And uh, this is a large family. It's like the core group of the church. Actually, there was more than that that started it. In fact, I have a picture. Here's the core group. Just a couple weeks ago, we prayed for them. We sent out about 70 people from Gateway South. And from what I understand, they had 200 people in their first service this morning. Isn't that something? But what's really neat is Jesse and Chrissy were just living life. I think at that time, they just had six kids and living in central Austin and kind of had wandered away in their faith. And someone invited them to Gateway. So they went to Gateway North and were intrigued and even encouraged in their faith. And eventually they were shopping there near their house in Central Austin and met Kenny and Jenny Green. And they were invited to come to Gateway Central and so they did. And it was easier for them to connect there just because it was closer to their house. The groups were closer. Next thing you know, they're serving in a network and they're growing in a group. He eventually quits his job to become an intern. She becomes an intern and they have now, five years after coming for the first time to Gateway, are launching campus in Buda. See, it's an amazing thing that what God can do when we step in to a relationship with him, beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. It, what's fun is that they've kind of taken on this joke that Ricky Echiona, our student pastor, uh, said on the Sunday before Christmas. Buda, we're just south of weird and north of boring. <laughs> That's like their new thing, right? Now, I don't know if they're knocking on New Braunfels or San Antonio. I'm not sure. But some of you might wonder, well, why do we do different campuses? I mean, we sent out 70 people to Gateway that became Gateway Central three years ago. We sent out 70 to Buda more recently. And it's hard when we send out people we love. And we don't get to see them as much. We miss them. Why don't we just grow to keep getting bigger and bigger? I mean, that's what most churches try to do. Well, see, our aim is to love God and to love people, all people. But you can only do that locally, connected to others. See, we want to be a campus planting campus and be a place where we're small enough where you can know the people around you. I mean, what's really even beautiful about this room is you can sit in the same section every week and you start seeing the same people and getting to know those folks. But then even more so, when you start serving in a network and growing in a group, people are now in your life. See, we want to be small enough where you can stay connected, but large enough to where we have opportunities for all ages. And even what's remarkable is by being a church with many campuses, we can do far more together than we ever could on our own. In fact, at the end of the year, together, all of our campuses, we gave $150,000 above all of our budgets in order to bless our partners overseas. Isn't that great? $150,000. Yeah. So if you gave at the end of the year, know that what you gave actually is helping 10 pastors in an incredibly poor part of India take medicine and bring care to orphans and the elderly, and spiritual care to villages that may not have even ever heard of Jesus. 
Your generosity is enabling women to start their own businesses. The scarves that we purchased allow them to start their own business with a sewing machine that will take care of their family for years to come. Through the mission of hope in Haiti, they're feeding and educating 230 more kids all year because of your generosity. And in Burundi, through World Relief, a thousand people in poverty are going to have improved agricultural practices and training in microfinance, children's ministry, and spiritual growth. And 50,000 of the 150 we're using to help launch these new campuses in Pflugerville and Buda and Dripping Springs. So, but how do we become, each one of us, more accepting and grace-giving people? We want to create these places, these communities where People can come and and know they're loved, but how do we become those kind of people on our own? That our home is a place where anyone can come as they are. Well, first, accept the person. That's the beginning. Accept the person first. See, the problem is, though, we've been trained to see people transactionally. See, we relate to people based on what they have done or what they can do for us or how they might affect us. As a result, we judge their value to us based on their behavior or even what they look like. It's what we were trained to do. But see, God does not do that. God values you. He values every person based on our intrinsic worth, based on what God created you to be. Should become accepting, grace-giving people. We must learn to value people like God does. So what, what's a person's worth to God? Well, you, you can tell what someone is worth or something is worth based on what someone's willing to pay for it. When we lived in Los Angeles, uh, we bought our first house at the age of 30, and we really stretched to get this house. We spent more than anyone we're related to. Everybody we're related to lives in Texas. And we, we bought this 900-square-foot home with two bedrooms, one bath, built in 1928, We were so proud of this little home, and we were so excited, and then something remarkable happened. The value kept going up and up. And by 2007, it was worth three times what we paid for it. My wife said, we got to sell. We got to sell right now. And I said, are you kidding? We got to hold on to this. We're going to be rich. And then something happened, the economy or something. (laughs) Housing market collapsed. And it started going down, down, down. Now, a few years later is when we sensed God calling us here. And so we put our house on the market. And oh, how I wanted to put it at the peak price. But no one would even come to visit. The realtor would not even hear it. We had to put it at what someone would be willing to pay for it. See, that's how you determine the value of something. See, the problem is we tend to overvalue things but undervalue people. So what's the worth of a person? What's the price tag that God puts on a person? I want you to think about the most obnoxious, mean-spirited, sinful, addicted, struggling human that you can. All right? The person you can't stand the most. What's the price tag in your mind of their worth? All right? Think about it. What's the highest price someone would pay for them? This is what the scriptures tell us. God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. 
It was the precious blood of Christ. See, God loves you so much that he came to rescue you before you or I ever did anything right or anything wrong. He showed your value in that he was willing to shed his blood, to die on the cross for you and me. God set the value of each person by what he was willing to pay, sacrificing himself. See, he values you and me and everyone that's walked and walking on this planet. He values Muslims and Buddhists, immigrants, people in the gay community, Republicans, Democrats, nice, happy people, drug addicts, crooked CEOs. He even values Christians. See, every person from every nation has eternal value. And Jesus demonstrated that value as he gave his life for humanity. He gave all he could pay as a human. Jesus said this in John 12, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He was referring to that moment when he willingly gave himself dying on the cross for all people. Why? Why would he do this? Because he sees what you are truly worth to the artist who created you. Some of you know this analogy we've shared over the years. But in 1997, my wife and I decided to go on really kind of like an epic honeymoon. At the time, we were living in Seattle. Now, we had gotten married in Dallas-Fort Worth, and we went on our honeymoon to Los Angeles. And it was fun, for sure. It's all we could afford. And it's kind of weird, though, to go somewhere you're going to live eventually for a honeymoon. And so at this point, we were kind of thinking about moving to Los Angeles, but we were living in Seattle, and so we decided to go on a three-week trip to Europe. And we were so excited. We didn't have any kids at the time. We had able to save up, and we were going to do this on the cheap, and it was going to be so much fun. And we got there, and we saw seven countries in those three weeks. We did Rome in a day, Paris in a day, Barcelona in a day. Now, I don't necessarily recommend that. We were young and naive. We actually thought, let's just visit all the places, and then that way, when we come back later, we can stay longer. It's been, what, 30 years, and we've never made it back, right? <laughs> but in one of those places we went was Madrid. And Madrid was beautiful. And in all these places, we would go see old churches and go to these museums, and you become kind of like art critics and historians, right, as you travel Europe. And my favorite painting is by Diego Velazquez. It's called Las Maninas. Have you seen it? Let me show you. Maybe you will recognize it. Las Maninas. It means the ladies in waiting. Now, I want you to look closely at it. It's a beautiful painting. By some, it's considered the greatest piece of art on the planet. But I want you to notice, the reason I like it, it's the first photobomb in world history. See, that's Velasquez standing there with the paintbrush on the left. And what's fascinating is we know the names of everybody in this painting, except for the bodyguard, the guy on the top right, and the dog there at the bottom. But we do know that the dog comes from the lineage of a gift, a mastiff given by King James I. And so this painting, though, what's fascinating is, see, Diego Velasquez was the official painter for King Philip IV and his wife, the queen, who was from Austria. They're actually in the painting too. Can you see them? That's them in the mirror. 
See, what this painting is doing is you and I are standing in the place where the king and queen were standing. See, he's stepping back from the painting. He's looking back. The painting is on the left. He can see what he's painting, but we can see what the king and queen can see. And right in the middle is their little girl who grew up to become the holy empress of Rome. And and in this painting, what we discover is that his vision is what they are seeing. In fact, the original name for this painting was called La Familia, the family. It's what the royal parents could see. Now, this was the king's favorite painting. In fact, he kept it in his study. And after he died, it stayed in the palace. And the only other place it's ever been seen was at the Prado, the museum that we were at. It's never been put out on loan. It's just too valuable. It's too amazing of a painting. The Spanish don't want to share this kind of painting with the world. But something tragic happened Christmas Eve in the year 1734. During Christmas Mass, a fire began in the palace. In fact, legend has it that as the bells were ringing to warn people of the fire, they just thought it was part of the Christmas mass. As a result, a few people died. Most were able to get out and were saved, but 500 paintings were destroyed. One of those that was damaged was this one. Now, just imagine you were there the day after. The whole palace is in rubble. The furniture and the tapestries and the paintings are all just on the ground, covered in soot and dirt and mud. Say you were to come across Las Maninas and you saw it, would you just consider it trash? Would you just, would you just leave it there to be discarded with the rest of what had been ruined? Would you only see the mud and the damage? Of course not. We would look past that mud and we would see the masterpiece. We would know it's worth millions and we'd carefully take it to a master artist in order for him to restore it to its original value. You see, you are a masterpiece covered in mud. (laughs) But you are royalty. See, God sees more in you than you see in yourself. God has an eternal memory of you. He can see who you were created to be before you did or didn't do anything. Listen to this verse, one of our favorite verses here at Gateway, Ephesians chapter two. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Think about what that means. God sees you fully, eternally, always has, always will. Nothing you've done or failed to do or will do can change that. That's why he put a price tag on your life at the highest value possible on earth. And that's not just true of you and me. That's true of every person that you've looked at, that you've seen. See, to become an accepting, grace-giving person, you must see the masterpiece under the mud in yourself and in others. See, but the problem is some of us struggle with believing God loves us in this way because people claiming to follow Jesus judged us. They failed to offer grace. They didn't live out what Jesus said and the Bible teaches. Now, this was true in Jesus' day, too. The religious leaders were called Pharisees, and they loved to judge other people. So Jesus 
would go to those that they were judging. If you look at the scriptures, you can see that he interacted the most with the people that were not welcome in the synagogue, with women, with Gentiles, with those who were sick, the sinners, the lepers. See, God's love is for those the church has rejected, even to this day. And I wanna encourage you, if you're here reluctantly and you've been wounded in the past by people who call themselves Christians, don't let judgmental religious people keep you from knowing the God who loves you, who cares for you, who is inviting all who truly follow him to be these kind of accepting, grace-giving people. So how do we accept the person first? Well, we picture in our mind's eye the masterpiece that God created them to be. We see past the mud and start by treating others as eternally valuable to God. Have you ever been around somebody that you really like? Someone with whom you know you really matter? What was it about that experience that was so enjoyable? I mean, think about it. They, They probably ask you a lot of questions and they listen to your answer. Have you ever talked with someone you can tell they're thinking about their next question while you're answering their first one? And you don't feel as cared for. But see, these are people that when you're in their presence, they listen deeply to you and your story. They encourage you. They are genuinely wanting to get to know you. And you probably wanted to be around that person more and more because it feels good to experience just a glimpse of God's grace-giving acceptance through another person. And to become people who give grace-giving acceptance, we have to pay attention to how we frame people. See, what you hold in your heart, the mental framework in which you picture a person is what people react to most. And, And when we realize this, this can transform all of our relationships. Did you know that most of communication with another person isn't through the words we use? Some say between 10 to 30% of communication is the actual words. But genuinely, how we communicate is with tone, with body language, facial expressions. And I want to suggest something even more subliminal gets communicated. The heart. See, we can feel when someone really cares about us and when they don't. A heart of grace-giving acceptance brings healing to people. Four decades of research into psychotherapy has now demonstrated that the most influential factor that actually helps change a person during therapy is actually the relationship with the counselor. It doesn't matter the technique the counselor uses. It could be behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, emotionally focused therapy, gestalt therapy. It doesn't matter. Studies have shown how the therapist feels about the client makes the biggest difference. If the client feels warmth and empathy and has a genuine relationship, that's the kind of thing that actually helps that person change. See, and here's what's beautiful. See, you and I can do that for free for each other. We can offer empathy and warmth and genuine relationship with others because that's what people respond to. Now, I'm not saying to stop going to your counselor. And I'm not saying you shouldn't go to a counselor. What I am saying is a counselor is not enough. We need people in our life, friends who are on this journey with us and who we are encouraging along the way as well. See, we need to pay attention to what's in our heart towards that person because they can feel intuitively how we see them. 
And if we're gonna be influential people, life-giving people, people who are more like Jesus, we must pay attention to the mental framework, the way we feel about them. They need to know that we are for them, not against them, that we highly value them. But what if you hold in your heart towards another person judgment and, and you don't value them and you, you're condescending and self-centered and manipulative? People can sniff that out like dogs at a dog park. But how, you may ask, can we hold good thoughts in our hearts when people are such idiots? Let's just be honest here, right? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. See, Jesus offered mercy and grace to people who deserved judgment. So to be an accepting, grace-giving person, we have to obey Jesus when he says this, judge not. In Luke 4, Jesus stands up in his hometown. He's beginning his ministry after caring for his family for years as a carpenter. It's now time to start his mission. And he stands up and he begins reading from this ancient prophet, Isaiah, written 700 years before this day. And Isaiah was writing about the Messiah to come. And Jesus reads these words to the people in that synagogue. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what's interesting is Jesus actually cuts off the rest of the sentence. He, he actually didn't finish reading it. See, he wanted to stop and make sure that the message that he has and the message that his followers have should be this. We are for you. This is the year of the Lord's favor and we're here to serve you. That God is for you and not against you. Do people perceive you in that way? Do they perceive you as for them or against them or annoyed, easily distracted from time with them. See, what the rest of this sentence actually says in Isaiah 61, it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. See, that's the part that we really like. Now, not, not towards us, towards everybody else. We like the year of the Lord's favor for us. But Jesus stopped there. He was trying to make a point. See, there will be a day where everything is made right. But God is going to do that. We are to be those who make sure everyone knows that God loves them. God favors them. That's why Jesus began his ministry with that verse. He said, this is the year of the Lord's jubilee. In other words, I am the one you've been waiting for. So Jesus instructs us in Luke 7, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. See, the religious Pharisees of Jesus today loved to judge others who couldn't live up to their standards. And as a result, Jesus rebuked them. If you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, sometimes he sounds really upset and even harsh. And that is because that may be the only thing that could have broken through their hard hearts. But when speaking to the sinner, to the brokenhearted, Jesus was incredibly kind. But to the religious leaders, the arrogant who didn't feel like they needed God's help, he would say these things, like in Luke 11, 
Jesus said, you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. See, the problem is, the tricky thing is, we all judge each other, but not on God's standards, but our own standards. I want to encourage you to do an experiment. This week, just try to catch yourself throughout the week when you might be judging another person. It may happen more than you could even imagine, right? Whether you're watching the news and you judge the things that you hear and the people involved, or maybe that's why reality TV is so popular. It's really fun to judge all the terrible decisions people are making just to win this or that, right? But we judge our neighbors. We judge the people closest to us. It's our favorite pastime, if we're honest. See, don't judge is our society's motto, but we all slip into this mental framework that kills grace-giving acceptance. So monitor your thoughts this week. Just see if you can move past that. But what happens if we're not careful is we secretly hold others to this higher standards that we would highly resent being held to. Now, people expect judgment, and that's what keeps them from turning to God because the people of God seem to be the best at this. But only when we begin to stand under the umbrella of God's grace-giving acceptance will we be able to have the opportunity to address the mud and the stain in our own lives and let God remove it. That's what changes us. That's what changes others. So we have to give up judging and, like Jesus, show grace-giving acceptance to those around us. Instead, we need to let God do the changing. Paul in the New Testament reminds the Corinthian church how people change. He said this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. See, God causes growth. Our job is not to fix the people around us. We cannot change anyone or grow anyone. I've heard it said the only, people you can, or the only type of people you can change are babies' diapers. You cannot change anyone. You cannot fix anyone. You cannot grow anyone. But, but what, what about someone we really care about and they're making bad decisions, something that could really hurt them or hurt other people? See, the scriptures tell us not to judge and the scriptures tell us to speak the truth in love. See, the problem is sometimes we don't know how to do that. See, sometimes God speaks to us that gentle rebuke comes from someone we actually trust and we know loves us. So we shouldn't get confused. In our culture, we say, don't judge. And so we've tried to eliminate judging people out loud, but we end up judging others in our own head or gossiping about them. But God has a new way. We create the soil of grace-giving acceptance. We stop judging. And instead, we have a mental framework of I am for you. And in that safe place, we help each other learn how good God is, so we can trust him more and more. And when we struggle or fail or fall, we have people who lovingly share with us the truth. You see, friendship eliminates blind spots. Who are the people in your life that care enough about you they can be honest? Who are the people that you care enough about that they will listen when you see things that you can tell they need in their life? See, you and I need these kind of intimate friendships. See, Jesus said the message of the scriptures can be summarized in this way. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But too often our view is, is skewed. It's more like we think of religion as judge God and judge your neighbor as you judge yourself. 
See, we're way too negative and harsh with others and ourselves because we have a misunderstanding of who God is. So we need to move our understanding of what we're doing here as being religion and actually seeing it as it truly is. It's about relationship, relationship with God and with others. See, religion says, I messed up and my dad is going to kill me. Relationship says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. That's the kind of relationship that God invites you to have to see him as the loving, caring father that you and I have all needed and wanted and to be that for each other. So it's 2020. Can you envision a new you? Can you see it a year from now, overcoming, becoming more that person God's created you to be? If you want a new year, it's gonna require new intention. Maybe take one night off a week from Netflix or Hulu or whatever you stream and just have one night a week committed to spiritually growing in a group. Take one morning a week to, to serve others with others in a network. Try every morning to connect with God. We've suggested at 7.14 in the morning for seven to 14 minutes, spend time praying and reading from the scripture. It can be any time of day. And every week on Sundays, come and just ask God, God, what do you have for me and what do you want from me? As we do these things, these new practices, I'm telling you, things will change dramatically. This last Friday night, we had a Connecting with God event for the new year. And I don't know if you know this, but a tornado was coming. Uh, schools canceled extracurriculars and it was, you know, windy and dark and and. We started at 6.30, and it was clear and fine, and we ended at 9.30, and it had poured in between. But no one got wet who came. If it one who came, and it just, for many, many people I didn't know had just stepped out of their comfort zone, just wanting to do something a little different, just to get, to get to know a few other people. But one of those who came sent me a text the next day, and she said this. I had been dealing with loneliness and wanting attention, but realized what I needed was intimacy with God. I got that last night, and it was so fulfilling that I just cried. I also realized I can't have any substitute, that I'm not satisfied, and I want more of God. See, in this new year, what if instead of judging others to make ourselves feel better, what if instead of running off to the normal things that we go to for comfort, what if we sought out more of God and more of God's people? When we do that, we will be transformed and become the person God created us to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's overwhelming to consider how much you love us. God, forgive us when we have not conveyed your love through our words and actions to those around us. God, forgive us for seeing things through a skewed perspective Rather than allowing you to tell us who you've created us to be, we've allowed the world and our damaged experiences to skew us. God, help us to see with your eyes how much you love and value all the people around us. God, help us to see how much you love us. And as we experience your love, may it bubble out of our life and into the lives of those around us. God, may our families feel different. 
our apartments with our roommates, may our experience be different. Where we work, where we go to school, our neighborhoods, may they be different because we are representing you as loving, accepting, grace-giving royalty. God, may we live out who you've created us to be, your sons and daughters of the King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.